0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, we've uh, spent two Sundays already uh, looking at the second coming of Christ. Uh, Both times I ran out of time, and so for a third time uh, we're actually going to come back to uh, this topic because... Well, two reasons really. I think it's so important and so underestimated uh, in the Christian's life how we ought to live looking to the second coming of Christ and second because the next few weeks we're going to be looking at the first coming of Christ and I think it's going to be that much more meaningful as we see Christ in His glory that He had with the Father before the foundation of the earth. That's the glimpse the disciples got in Luke 9, in the transfiguration, a preview of His second coming. That glorious Christ humbled Himself. That's what we're going to look at the next few weeks uh, as we come uh, into the Christmas season that we might be shocked at the condescending nation or uh attitude of Christ that he'd be willing to let go of that glory, become a man and even become obedient unto death on a cross. But one more week I want to look at this second coming and especially Peter uh, in the second letter that he re- that he wrote to uh, Christians that have been scattered, that have been suffering, he wants them to see this picture clearly. And so we're going to uh, look at Second Peter, uh, chapter three. Let's read the first thirteen verses. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, "...but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. God, give us wisdom into this text. Father, I pray that it would spur on a zeal for Christians here. Father, for those who aren't yet trusting in Christ, God, I pray that they would Believe your word and turn from finding hope in anywhere other than Christ for their salvation. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I want to begin with this morning that I want you to consider for yourself is actually three questions. The first one's this. How is your joy? I want you to think about that. Just as you come to church this morning, how is your joy? Second question. How is your motivation to serve the Lord? to self-sacrificially serve like Christ? How's your joy? How's your motivation to serve? And the third question, how's your motivation to live a holy life? To live a life that's worthy of Christ? Now, if you're honest... Maybe there's not many that come here this morning saying, oh, my joy is great. If it is, praise the Lord. Maybe you're not saying my motivation to serve others and to live a holy life. Maybe you're struggling. Well, this morning, I hope to stir up your minds and hearts as Peter desired to stir up the minds and hearts of the believers in His day. What makes you tick? That's a saying we hear today. You know, what is it that makes you tick? Oh, this is what makes that person tick. What makes you tick? It's a weird saying. It's like we're a clock or something. What makes us work? What makes us get out of bed in the morning? What's our purpose for living. John MacArthur says, the promise of the second coming is the greatest motivator for your joy, for your service, and for your holiness. The promise of the second coming. How important is it that our minds are stirred to think about Every day, the promises that are bound up in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Out of the 27 New Testament books, 23 of them explicitly talk about the second coming of Christ. Three of the four that don't explicitly talk about it are one chapter long. And the other one, the book of Galatians, implicitly speaks of the second coming of Christ as he begins that letter by telling the Galatians that they need to look to the one that will deliver them from the present evil age. This is why the third Sunday in a row we're talking about this. It strikes me that growing up as a Christian, this wasn't a drumbeat that was drilled into my head helping me see how practical this ought to be for my life. This is what motivated Paul's life. Right before Paul died, he wrote a letter to Timothy. It's 2 Timothy. And at the end of that letter, look at how the second coming motivated Paul, here's what he says in verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He knows he's going to die for his faith. I have fought the good fight. Why didn't you give up? Why do you keep fighting, Paul? I finished the race. Why did you keep running? Fights are hard. Races are difficult. I've kept the faith. How did you do that in the face of persecution? Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. Here's how I fought the good fight. Here's how I finished the race. Here's how I've kept the faith. There's righteousness that the judge is going to give me on that day. It's a crown of righteousness. It's Jesus' perfect life. It's not His own righteousness. It's a gift. And when He faces God, the Judge, He's going to be awarded, because He trusted Christ, Christ's righteousness. And it's going to be awarded to all those who loved the appearing of Christ. Do you love Christ? Are you looking forward to Christ's return? Hebrews 9.27 And just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's why He came the first time, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christians born again, people who are truly saved long for Christ. Listen to Hebrews 10:34. "For you had compassion. He's, he's speaking to these Christians. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince them to stay the course, not to turn away from salvation in Christ. And he reminds them of what happened at their conversion, how they were looking forward to Christ, how that motivated them in the present. Here's what he said to this unique group of people who had compassion on those in prison. This is Hebrews 10.34. Christians were put in prison. The only way a person survived in prison in those days was if someone would bring you food in prison. The prisons didn't feed you. So unless family members or friends came to bring you food, you would die. And if you got put in prison for being a Christian, who's going to dare go bring them food let, for lest you be exposed as a Christian and you get thrown in prison. But here's what he says. For you, or, or he says, you had compassion on those in prison and because of that, evidently, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. These are people who served those in prison, lost their property because of it. And then he says, here's why you did it since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come. One of the names for Christ is the coming one. Yet in a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Two types of people in the world. One, when Christ returns, they shrink back and go, oh, no. And others, who are eagerly waiting. This is their hope. This is what they've been waiting for. This is the one that brings the new heavens and the new earth. My righteous want you to live my, by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and persevere their souls. It is so important that you not only know about the second coming, but that your hope is set in it. In Christ, the coming one. Now before we jump right into 2 Peter 3, I do want to draw your attention to 2 Peter 1 real quickly. We looked at this last week. But what you have is you have Peter who got a taste of the second coming of Christ in the transfiguration. That's what we saw in Luke 9. And what I'm arguing is that when he got a taste of that, this is what motivated his life, the rest of his life. This is how he motivated Christians. And we see it in both of his letters that he wrote. And here's what he says in Second Peter 1, starting in verse 16. He says, For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And then he speaks of the transfiguration because he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice that is born to Him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. He's saying, we saw it. And we have the prophetic word, meaning the Scriptures, more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Peter says. He says, the prophets spoke of the second coming of Christ. And we have that word confirmed at the Mount of Transfiguration. Three witnesses were there. Peter, James, and John. They got to see a preview of it. And then you had Moses and you had Elijah there. Old Testament witnesses pointing to Christ. And he says, remember, the Scripture is God's words. And right now in this dark time, the morning star hasn't rose yet. The day hasn't dawned yet when He comes. But in the meantime, here's what you do. You pay attention to the Word that tells you of His coming. And this transfiguration is like a lamp that's shining ahead of time. And so he's telling Christians, he's pleading with Christians to hang on to this hope. Then he goes into chapter 2 and he says, don't listen to false teachers. He exposes their conduct. And then in chapter 3 is where he shows us how to defeat their arguments and remind us of the truth of the second coming. So let's look at that. Let's look at 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1. And Peter's argument culminates in verse 10 when he says, since the, the, the day of the Lord will come. So you see in your notes, in light of the fact that Christ will come, we need to live lives remembering false teachers will come, remembering God's character and remembering how we ought to live in light of it. Look at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. First thing I want to point out is minds need to be stirred up. Peter knew this. Truths that are in your mind and my mind need to constantly be stirred up so that those truths are lived upon. This is what we do as Christians. We remind each other of things we already know over and over and over again that we might live by faith during this dark time. He needs to remind them of the second coming that the prophets spoke about and that the apostles spoke about as Christ promised that He would come. And notice He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. He's not concerned that these believers aren't sincere, he's not challenging the sincerity of their mind, but he's looking at sincere believers who need encouragement, need to be stirred up. And so that's really the goal of the sermon. The goal of the pastor's sermon is always the goal of the text. And what Peter wants to do is stir up the minds of those who might be tempted to let these truths kind of go to the back burner, and might be tempted to have anxiety fill their lives, look, look, are tempted to only look at the present circumstances as though these promises aren't true. And this is what he said in chapter 1 as well. He also said, he, he says, I think it's right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So <laughs> Peter's saying, here's the deal. I'm going to keep reminding you of this. For one, because I'm going to be gone soon and I'm not going to be here to remind you. But two, a man who knows he's going to die soon for the faith has good perspective on life. That's why more wisdom comes out of 80-year-olds than 17-year-olds. Because 17-year-olds think of the world as all in front of them. There's all this time. An 80-year-old sees their death right in front of them and can have proper perspective on what's really important. Well, Peter had that. And he's trying to stir their minds to the hope of that Christians have. And then he says in verse 3, and here's where you see uh, point 1 in your notes, remember false teachers will come. So he wants to stir their minds up because he wants them to know First, this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, the title he gave these false teachers was scoffers because it tells you part of their argument. It's a mocking argument. (laughs) Why are you living the way you're living? You're waiting for the second coming of Christ? <laughs> Can you even believe the Bible? A bunch of, It's just a book that a bunch of men wrote. Well, what did Peter already say? No prophecy is produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke God's words. But scoffers will come, and mock part of their argument is an emotional argument that tries to make christians feel stupid tries to make them feel non-intellectual non-factual he's going to make an that they're going to make an argument that says you don't know history oh you're just one of those i'm going to live by faith take a leap into the dark on this one little hope. Well, do, do Christians take a leap into the dark? No. We walk by faith in the Word of God and God's Word has always come true. He's faithful. But they're going to come scoffing and mocking. So don't be surprised when they come. And if John MacArthur's right in saying the second coming is the greatest motivator for our joy, our service, and our holiness, then they're going to come because it's Satan's best plan of action to devastate a Christian soul. If he can get you to doubt the promise of the second coming of Christ, he can steal your joy, your motivation to love and serve others and your motivation to kill sin. So it's no surprise that the scoffers are coming and their argument is not just an emotional scoffing argument, but it's an accommodating argument in that, Their view or their argument accommodates for their own sinful lives. A person can't live expecting judgment at the end of the road. It's not a way you can sleep at night. So if I'm going to live according to sinful desires and however I want, then I better get rid of the second coming of Christ because that's where I'll stand judged before God. They're scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You see, they're not honest skeptics. (laughs) They're convenient skeptics. Here's the way I want to live, therefore I don't believe the Bible. Jesus isn't really coming back. Can you really trust that? You think they're saying that because they've actually studied the Greek manuscripts to see if those are reliable? You see, they don't really care to find out if the Bible's reliable. They've already decided if the Bible says this against my sin and I want to sin, i got to get rid of the Bible. And then we see their argument is an argument of uniformity. Look at verse 4. Here, here's their intellectual argument. So uh, John MacArthur pointed out that part of their argument's emotional, part of it's moral, accommodating for their morals, and the third part of it is their reason. Here's the argument from reason. They will say... Where is the promise of His coming? That's not an honest question. (laughs) That's them scoffing and mocking, saying, okay, Jesus is going to come back. How long has it been? (laughs) 2,000 years? Where is His coming? Here's what they're going to say. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's the argument of uniformitarianism. (laughs) That's a big word. And really it fits well with the evolutionary worldview. That the way we understand this world is that over a long period of time with no cataclysmic changes where God intervenes and does something, this is how we got to where we are today. And if you're going to live in rebellion to God, you better hope this is how the world is because if God in a moment is going to break into this earth and what seemed to go on the same all along is all of a sudden going to stop when he comes, then this would be a very bad thing for them. And so they look back at history, not very far, but they look back and say, Look, every day happens just the same way. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. You really think that Jesus is all of a sudden going to show up here? You really think he's coming back? And then in verse 5 says, For they deliberately overlook this fact. Every false teacher isn't a sincere false teacher but they're a deliberate false teacher. They deliberately reject the Word of God that they actually know deep down in their hearts to be true. And uh, this is what Paul teaches in Romans 1.18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So... Here's how he describes all mankind. He, he tells them the fact, the wrath of God is coming, but as that truth comes to them, they take that truth and they suppress it down. They push it away. They push it down. And then in verse 19 it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So every false teacher is someone who's taken the truth of God, suppressed it down because of their own unrighteousness. They don't want to believe it to be true. They press it down and although God made it plain to them that they will give an account one day. They press that down and they say, no, he's not coming. No, it's not true. They deliberately overlook this fact. Here's what Peter points out. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He's pointing back to creation you have the Spirit of God hovering over the water. And as the Spirit of God hovered over the water, God spoke land into existence, spoke the earth into existence. The water took form in a spherical form. And then land came up out of the water. And the point is, at a point in time, God said something and this happened. By the word of God is uh, what's to be highlighted in verse 5. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So here's what they deliberately forget. God created the world. That's a cataclysmic event at the beginning. And then here comes the earth. And then by God's command, as His judgment to sin on the earth, covers the whole earth and water again at the flood. You see, that's two convenient things to forget if you're going to say the second coming isn't going to happen. And then in verse 7 he says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up, not for water anymore, but for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We're in an intermediary time when God's going to speak again, and when He speaks again, His Son's going to come, and this earth that was twice covered with water will now be stored up for fire. Ten miles below the earth's surface is fire. Did you know that? Ten miles isn't very far. Beneath us is fire. What's up in the sky? What's our sun? Fire. What are stars? Fire. John MacArthur points out, human beings have figured out how to split an atom. I'm not a scientist, but fire is there as well. So if you're wondering, if you think, no way, this earth can't burn, all God has to do is open up the ground and fire can come from underneath and volcanoes are just a good little reminder that lava can pretty much burn anything. Anything. The prophets of old spoke of this day. Psalms 50 verse 1 says this, The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. So this is speaking of the coming of God. He does not keep silent. Before Him is devouring foul." fire and around him a mighty tempest. That means whenever I see tempest, I think F5 tornado only bigger. Fire and wind don't go good together. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice trusted in him by Christ. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And then Micah 1, verse 2 says this, Hear you peoples and pay attention, O earth, all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And then in Malachi 4, one, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be like stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Ah, oh, some are going to receive this, the coming of the Lord as this healing time. Others as a judge. Those who are healed, you shall go leaping like calves from a stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the sole of your feet. Uh, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And so we see that the earth is stored up for judgment, stored up as fire for judgment of the ungodly. And then he says in verse 8, but don't overlook this fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. What he's simply saying there is God is outside of time. He's not bound by time. What we consider a long time isn't a long time for the Lord. And then he says in verse 9, we see the character of God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. The scoffers are saying, Well, your God promised he's coming soon. It's been 2,000 years. And he says, that's not how you should consider this time, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. It is God's desire that time is given for his people to repent and trust Christ. In fact, if you're trusting Christ today, it's because God was patient enough to give you time to hear the gospel and trust in Christ. If you're alive today, and everyone here is, it looks like, you have the highest privilege. You have the opportunity to turn to Christ while there's time. To receive His perfect gift so that you can be people who have the hope of glory waiting for you. And the reason why Christ hasn't returned yet is not because God isn't going to fulfill His promises, but because He's patient. He doesn't will that any should perish. When is the party thrown in heaven? When a sinner repents, right? Heaven loves the patience of God because When sinners repent, a party happens in heaven when they turn away from themselves and trust Christ. This is what Paul taught in Romans 2. Or do you presume upon the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed when he'll render uh, to each one according to his deeds. Here's what he's telling people. Just because (laughs) you sinned yesterday and a lightning bolt didn't come out of heaven, you shouldn't go, oh, God's fine with me. No, God's patient with you. He's giving you time to repent. But if you don't repent, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath. Every unbeliever in the world, if you can imagine a clear tube, uh, this is the picture that comes into my mind. All right, this is going to take longer than I want, but I'm going to tell you anyways. There used to be the Rushmore water slides on the Black Hills. And one of the water slides had this clear tube that would fill with water behind you. And when they would push a button, all that water would come down and send you down the slide. Well, when Paul says, because of your hard and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath, the temptation of the sinner is to say, I keep sinning and nothing happens, so God doesn't think it's a big deal. But more wrath, because God's a good, righteous judge, builds up for every sin you've ever committed. And so this clear tube of wrath that everyone's walking around with ought not feel comfortable. But what they ought to do is do what Paul says in the very next chapter turn to Christ. Because he says in chapter three, he says, Christ is the propitiation for your sins. That means anyone who trusts in Christ, that's a big word, propitiation, it means that when you trust in Christ, your tuber wrath gets. Rotated over on the head of Christ, and the button is pushed, and He swallows down all your wrath for your sin. For those who trust Christ, He is the one who absorbs and takes the wrath of God on your behalf. And everyone in this room has opportunity to trust, to hope in Him. And then he says in verse 10, the climax of his argument, but the day of the Lord will come. He's going to come like a thief. How does a thief come? Does a thief leave a message on your door? Four nights from now at two in the morning, I'm going to break your back window and I'm going to come down and steal your valuables. That's not how a thief comes. A thief comes by surprise when you least expect him. And Peter is talking to Christians that are being persecuted. They're on the run. They're exiles for their faith. And he must have heard word that some are about ready to give up. And what he says is, oh, if they could see what I saw at the of Transfiguration, if they would believe what the prophets said about the second coming, then they would endure. Then they would have joy in the midst of suffering. Then they would have motivation to love God their enemies, then they would have motivation to fight their sin. But he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavens means the stars, the galaxies. I don't know what that roar sounds like. I can't imagine it the heavenly bodies will be burned up. That's the stars and the planets. And, and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's like everything else. The heavens, according to Psalm 19, are to declare the glory of God. Those are all going to go away. There's going to be a time when Christ comes in full glory when all the works of the earth will be exposed for what they are listen listen to isaiah 2 what people are going to do when when this happens enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the lord and from the splendor of his majesty The haughty looks of man will be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humble and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Here's the picture I get. Here's the earth. People on it. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Look what I did. Look what I did. Look at me. I didn't do that. I'm better than you think. (sighs) In that day, everyone shuts up and pride falls to the ground when Christ returns. And then a few verses later, Isaiah 2.17, it says, and the haughtiness of men shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter caves and rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols. I bet they will. Of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship and to the moles and to the bats and to enter caves and the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. And then here's how He ends Isaiah 2. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Here's what he's saying. Israel, stop accounting man. What is a man? A man is what the Lord has given him. What has the Lord given him? One lousy breath in his nose. And then what? Then he needs another one. Where's that going to come from? It comes from God. Stop regarding man. You see, Isaiah is saying, look at the second coming. You're going to see how foolish your lives look. If you only could know what's coming, then you would stop this silliness now. And then in Revelation 6, verse 12, speaks of the second coming. When He opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. There's fire fall to the earth as fig trees sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? All I can think is what a privilege you have to know ahead of time. We're not only told He's coming, we're told what people will say and do when He comes. How ought we to live? Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness represents our actions. Godliness represents our attitude. We ought to be people that have the second coming of Christ that orients our attitude. Waiting for the hastening. We're people who wait for and hasten the coming of the day. What does it mean to hasten the day of the Lord? Webster's Dictionary for the word hasten, hurry, rush, dash, dash, race, fly, shoot, scurry, scramble, dart, bolt, sprint, run, go fast, go quickly, go like lightning. We're to hasten this day. If we love is appearing, we're to be people praying, Lord Jesus, come! Because it's all going to be devoured, hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which Righteousness will dwell. There will be new stars. There will be new galaxies. There will be a new earth. And here's what you'll say about that earth. Righteousness dwells there. We don't say that about our earth now, do we? Death, sin, strife, anger, bitterness, brokenness. More are world but through jesus christ god will take away your sin he'll give you his perfect life so that your relationship can be restored to god and god will create a new heavens and a new earth and righteousness will sit down there it'll stay there it'll dwell there there I want to finish by reading Revelation, the last few paragraphs, Revelation 22, starting verse 12. He says, "Behold, I am coming soon." You just see, it just struck me) <laughs> Once again, this is so central to the Christian life. This is how the Bible ends. For behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. That causes us to go, "Uh uh-oh, right? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here's the good news for those of you going, uh oh, he's coming to expose my deeds. Blessed, which can be translated happy, are those who wash their robes so that they might, they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. He's just described the New Jerusalem in chapter, at the beginning of 22 and in chapter 21. And he says he's coming again to judge according to what people have done. Happy are those who wash their robes. Well, Where do you wash your robes? In the blood of Christ. You trust in Christ. He takes off your filthy robe. He puts it on himself. Takes the punishment for it. He gives you his perfectly white, perfect life that he lived in your place. And then he says, outside, are dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There's two groups of people. Those who look at their sin and say, I love it, I can't get enough of it. And because of that, I'm denying Christ's second coming. But then there's people who hate their sin. They want to stop it. They're waiting for a day when it'll be done away with for good. They're waiting for righteousness. And then Jesus says in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride, the bride is the church, say, come. That's what we say to God. And then here's an invitation to you. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, if you're sitting here saying, I have no hope before God on judgment day. If you're thirsty for righteousness because you don't have any, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn you, everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book and adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. He simply says, anyone who denies my word, scoffs at my word, says, I only believe parts of this word have no share in the kingdom of God. And then he says, he who testifies these things says, surely I am coming soon. The last words of Jesus are, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. My prayer is that you recognize you are thirsty. You don't have any righteousness. And that you need the water of life. You need what Christ has to offer you. And it's without price. A person is saved not by cleaning themselves up, but by coming and saying, I am a sinner. I'm broken. I want to change. Will you show me grace? The person who comes to God that way receives salvation and life in Him. Father, thank you for the promise of the second coming. What hope we have. Father, I pray that you would draw even this morning broken souls without hope. Desperately maybe just trying to eke a life out in this world, thinking that maybe happiness is found somewhere down here apart from you. God, I pray that they would lose hope in that and find eternal joy, eternal hope in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.